Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. I am really delighted to be here today with my guest, Ayad Akhtar, who is a novelist and playwright. He is the winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Drama and an award in literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. He's the author of American Dervish, as well as the novel Homeland Elegies, which we'll be talking about today. As a playwright, he has written Junk, Disgraced, The Who and the What, and The Invisible Hand. As a screenwriter, he was nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for Best Screenplay for The War Within. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. It's so, so nice to be here. So talk to me about writing a book that requires, at least in the, um, in the galley version that I read, yeah. a note from you reminding readers that this is a novel, even though the main character shares your first name and your last name. <laughs> yeah, and many of the facts of my life, though, yeah. though not, all, not all of them. Um, you know, it's complicated. I, it was less, less a decision to write the book the way that I did and more something that evolved organically or sort of erupted organically. I, I wanted to be able to have a, a relationship to the reader that felt more immediate than fiction, but I only know how to write fiction. Right. So I wouldn't have known how to write a memoir. I mean, the, the book sort of apes, apes memoir as a kind of mode and tone, but, but it's doing that also because of the politics that we're living through, the collapse of fact and fiction. And, you know, I often say, or I have been saying around this book that, you know, people talk about autofiction these days. I don't think of it so much as auto, of, I don't think of it as autofiction. I think of it more as kind of a literary reality television, if you yeah. will, you know, and because I want to close that distance with the viewer, I want to seduce them. I don't necessarily want to have that kind of arm's length distance. So I felt that, um, you know, obviously the legal dimension of it, I went through a very, very long yes. legal review and Fiction there was all kinds of, yes, it was yeah. a long, long, big discussion about, should, you know, what kind of a note do I put in it? Do I put it in a note at the end? And finally, we kind of concluded that let's put a preliminary note to for advanced readers and then um, you know, the novel at the, you know, it would be framed as a novel in the reviews and as people talk about it. So we don't have to include that in the, in the final edition. So yeah, that confusion is part and parcel of what I'm trying to do. Sure. I mean, and, and we do, we're obsessed with knowing what the real parts are and, <laughs> and what the uh, fantasy um, less true parts are. Yeah. And that's something, you know, you talk about that a lot in the book, with your and or the protagonist's play that was put out post 9-11. Sure. And which people, is of course a riff on disgraced. Yeah. Yes, which is a riff on disgraced. And the idea that even then people wanted to know what you thought, the playwright. Yeah, I mean it's it's an interesting thing. You know, I think by putting novel on the cover, what I'm saying is that there's a different standard of truth that I'm holding I'm hoping the reader holds this story to. And I'm hoping that that truth is about a larger truth that includes all of us and not just some personal truth about what, whether this did or didn't happen to me. You know, I think at, at one point in the book, I quote D.H. Lawrence, you know, don't trust the teller, trust the tale. And if it sounds true, then maybe it's true in some way that's more important than whether it's actually true. Okay, but how did you deal with telling your family members and other people in your life about this? I didn't tell anybody. Oh, that's amazing. My, my mom passed away. Right. My, my dad was, uh, you know, in a significant state of 
uh, you know, constant inebriation really in the last two years of his life. And uh, I, you know, I sort of imagined that if the book got published, I didn't think he was not going to be with us when it, when it came out, but he is no longer with us. So, I'm so sorry. Thank you. Uh, there really, you know, there really wasn't anybody to tell. I, all I knew was that I had to do right by their memories. I had to do right by their legacies. And if I was going to sully their reputations, as I sort of do in the book, I had to sully my own. And you certainly swear <laughs> yourself, not at all. <laughs> I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get away. My, you know, in good conscience, I couldn't do it. And, I, and also, I just felt like, you know, what was the point, given the politics, given what's happened to the country, given the sort of state of our crumbling republic, what was the point in, in a personal project? This was a project to try to address our country. Your father was Trump's doctor for a little bit, at least, in the 80s. And he took away a really positive picture of him and his lifestyle and his choices well the book you know in the book the the, the book. father of the narrator yeah yes, in the, book, the father of the narrator is is donald trump's doctor for a couple of years and what that allows that story uh allows me to to tell us to tell a tale about what's happened to our politics that's more personal and that the attachment, you know, there's sort of a romance, a kind of bromance that, that begins on at least one way it's from my father to, toward Trump. And that that early encounter with him in the, in the mid-90s led to my dad uh, in the book feeling uh, justified and, and enthusiastic about his uh, campaign, which becomes a significant uh, source of tension between him and myself in the book. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Trump is, of course, a metaphor for so much. I mean, he's a metaphor in our social body, uh, you know, but he's also a metaphor in the book. He recurs constantly, subliminally and actually, because I think that the false, the ersatz, self-made, debt-fueled, consequence-free American personality which is in some sense where we're all headed. We're all seeking some form of that, although not perhaps with, you know, the kind of egregious stupidity that, that our president uh, evinces. Um, you know, that's part and parcel of what the book is about. It's a fundamental theme. Debt is one of the two or three fundamental themes of the book. And, and Donald Trump is impossible to imagine without, the, without debt. And without... Um, valuing money above all else, which yeah. is... Which is the other major theme of the book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but particularly when the father in the book sees what Trump is doing, the build the wall stuff, the travel bans. And as a Jewish person, I saw this too, that... that people were willing to contort themselves in all sorts of different ways that felt entirely unnatural yeah. to, to give him the benefit of the doubt. Yep. It was so important to believe that he wasn't really like that, quote unquote. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, it's bizarre, you know, like, so what's the, what's the social ontology or this is sort of social, what are the social categories of being and citizenry that, that, that um, allow this kind of stupidity to pass for political discourse. It's extraordinary what's happened. And it isn't, 
you know, and it certainly predates Trump. Trump is just the, the one who's understood how to avail himself of, of all of this maddening unreality and stupidity. And, uh, you know, so I think I wanted to find my way. I wanted to find a way to articulate to, I, the, 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 the politics of our country summoned something forth. I just, you know, I, I would never have, I would never have written a book like this if it hadn't been for where we are. It's such a complicated, it's such a complicated book. It's such a book that sort of makes demands on the reader and, and uh, I don't know that I would have felt emboldened to do so, but I just felt there was no choice. It was just, it, I, had to, I had to speak as deeply and as thoughtfully as I could about what I saw happening. And I think it's so rare that you can talk about dream interpretation as a way to structure a book. Yeah. And that the save the cat and uh, other screenwriting tips. Which of course, which of course I use throughout. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Even though I'm criticizing. <laughs> You're criticizing it, but you know, showing us different ways that things can unfold rather than chronologically. Yeah. Well, that's the thing as a dramatic writer. It's, you know, one thing that I've learned, there's lots of talk about likability and whether we like characters or don't like characters. I do think that that's an overblown conversation because I think ultimately readers really only care about a story where they want to know what happens next. Mm -hmm. And sometimes having likable characters is, is an important part of that. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes having a great villain is enough for you to want to know what happens next. Um, you know, House of Cards being a, a good example, the first season of House of Cards, you know, you want to know, you want to see Kevin Spacey get what you know he should not be trying to get. <laughs> It only just occurs to me now that the first episode he, yes, kills a, a cat, dog, animal. That's right. He kills an animal. That's right. So, <laughs> so he does the opposite of the kill. That's straight opposite. That's exactly right. So, you know, it was, it was an interesting, you know, everything in the kitchen sink get, got thrown into this book. And obviously one of the things that, that, that I spend some time talking about is craft and drawing attention to how story, how stories constructed. And tell me a little bit about the actual actor dream interpretation, because I, I, think, I think a lot of us are talking about dreams in a different way, even since quarantine started. And the idea of being able to, to make actual strong connections with what you're experiencing, uh, it feels foreign to me. I, I had a mentor who introduced me to the idea of of writing my dreams down in my early 20s. And I spent four years uh, with a pencil tied to my finger, as the narrator does in the book, um, noting my dreams. And I was, uh, I got to a point where I was uh, writing down nine dreams a night. I was waking up every 45 minutes and writing a dream down. And that lasted about four or four and a half years. My sleep has never really recovered from that. I had had literally thousands and thousands and thousands of dreams that I had sort of accumulated at that point. And, uh, you know, it's, I would spend a lot of time working through uh, what the logic was. Why, why, why were, what were dreams doing? And uh, did a lot of reading and sort of had a lot of conversations with people who also were doing stuff like that. So, yeah, it's been an important part of my creative process and my life. I don't, I'm not as sort of religious about it anymore, but I, I do remember pretty much every night I remember something. So. Mm -hmm. 
and then and then it seems like at least the for the narrator in the book that the act of just taking notes and transcribing even about the the everyday life stuff is also really important yeah i mean i th i think uh it's and it goes back to dreams you know the the the, the template of, of paying attention to what is important in a dream becomes a way of understanding how to build a text or build a story. So all of those things, you know, one of the things I love about the cover is how that cover, which is a, it's um, now a, the final cover is a tree with the, the branches that go up into the title and the roots go down into the name. And that's the fundamental metaphor that the mentor in the book uses about language, right? And the unconscious, uh, there's root system, the system of roots. Um, you know, I think that that creative process is always at least best for me when it's filled with surprises, when you when you have things that encounter each other that are unexpected. Um, and there's no better way to do that than than to trust the unconscious in a way. And then it, and then it allows you also to allow your narrator to listen to stories. To listen to stories and to move across time and to move that across it, time, you know because because in a dream you're you're 20 years you know association maybe with you as a kid or you in your 20s and suddenly but you're also with somebody from the present and everything's coexisting in this psychic space that is the space of memory and experience and how great i mean there's you know wonderful writers who pulled it off beautifully proust you know creates this the texture of the text is something that in which time is very fluid and uh, I wanted to do the same. I wanted, I wanted the consciousness of the book to encompass the half decade that my parents, between my parents arriving and Donald Trump's election. And, and um, it, it really is hard not to feel, particularly now that everything is connected um, in such profound ways. Even your character is told a story of um, of what happened to antitrust in the 1980s. Right. And how associating the idea that cheap consumer goods is the be all and end all for our economy denies the humanity of consumers. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, it denies it denies the importance of uh, of stakeholders other than stakeholders other than lowest lowest price buying customers. You know, obviously, you know we see it in in, in the COVID era. Uh, we're seeing corporate profits rise at, at conglomerates, and we're seeing small businesses shutter. And is that a is that a long term solution for economic or social? health or civil society? No, it's not. I mean, I think that the, the larger issues that are facing our country are fundamentally economic. I don't think they're issues of um, race and identity. I think that we are all suffering under a corporate totalitarianism that is bleeding the social body dry. And yes, of course, there are issues of injustice that need to be dealt with, but the extent to which we confuse those two things, mm. I worry that we're going we're gonna to be in for an even more pernicious social order. 
Yeah, I, I feel like there are people out there who think, oh, well, once Joe Biden is elected, everything will be just fine. Yeah, I'm and, worried. I'm worried that's not going to be the case. Um, <laughs> it certainly wasn't the case under Obama. No. It only got worse in that respect. And, you know, this is, this is my favorite time to bring up the fact that for all of the people who say that Amazon is bad, how many of them have Prime accounts? How many of them are? No, that's I because, do. because lowest, the lowest price and the convenience of its delivery, which is, again, part of the concept of consumer, you know, make, making good with your contract, your social contract with the consumer, rather than seeing that there's a much bigger picture in which our citizens' rights are not the same. They're not identical to our consumers' rights. That can, there's a confusion, I think, going yeah. on. And so if we are in more debt and we and education has been turned into such um, a money-making enterprise and homes are unaffordable, um, we're still going to be mad. <laughs> we're still going to be right. so mad. That's right. Exactly. That's exactly right. And that, in some sense, is the argument of the book. If there is an argument, that's the argument. And then, of course, you, because you've written about this so much in the past, um, another big part of the book is what it takes, what are the consequences of being critical of Islam? <laughs> yeah? yeah? Are you laughing? Well, because, because it's true. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. I mean, I, it's, you know, it's, it's funny to have it reflected back to me. It's like, yeah, that's, that's, that's an important sort of, that's an important poll. It's an important through line of, of my career. And it's an important through line of what I've been dealing with in my career, you know, and I think that it, it constellates, it constellates a deeper split between what artists have been generally expected to do, which is to operate as kind of consciences, in a way to sort of ask questions and to point up contradictions and to criticize really. Mm -hmm. Whereas now it seems like writers and artists are increasingly uh, called upon to be cheerleaders for uh, marginalized groups. And I don't think there's, I don't think you can do both. And again, coming to this as a Jewish American, I am still shocked all the time that I learned in school, nothing about Palestine ever right. was never even mentioned. And the idea that we can reckon with the, mis the terrible mistakes of the past and still not want any harm to come to members of our community. No, and, and that's, and yeah, exactly. And, you know, and Philip Roth made, made some interesting hay of that very contradiction. You know, it's, I think it's the, I think it's the job of an artist to, to do that. I don't think that we're in the business of advertising, but increasingly our capitalist sort of system means that you have to find a place. And that place means you, that your position as an advocate uh, gains you a platform that allows you to, you know, I think it's, I understand the ecology of the system, but I'm not sure that's what artists are really supposed to be doing. But that, look, that's just my opinion. What do I know? 
Sure. <laughs> Nothing at all. I'm sure. No, I'm just kidding. Um, tell me about, so you really get into this when you talk about the satanic verses, not you, your character yes, yes, talks yes. about the satanic verses yeah. in the book with yeah. a relative who is very critical of it. Well, she's, you know, it's my, uh, it's in the book, my, my, or the narrator's aunt, Asma, who uh, teaches or used to teach at uh, UConn in the book. Uh, and, and she is very excited when she learns that what I'm reading, she wants to know what I'm reading. And so it's, uh, I'm in my early twenties and I've just told my parents I want to be a writer and they're, you know, freaked out. But my, my aunt, who's this writer, you know, writes my parents a letter and says, no, it's okay. There is a career for somebody who wants to do this. But then she takes me out to dinner and she says, are you sure you want to do this? And then when she realizes that I am, she asks me what I'm reading. And I tell her I'm reading Rushdie. And she's excited because she thinks it might be Midnight's Children. But when I tell her it's Satanic Verses, she goes into a three or four page tirade, um, which, I, which I do in full accent in the audiobook. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it was kind of funny because I, had sent, the, I sent the book to Salman. <laughs> And he was so generous in blurbing it, even though there is this horrible harangue against his work in the middle of the book. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask. That's what I yeah. wanted to find out. Um, it, was, it, was a, it was really a beautiful moment. He's such a kind, he really is a very kind um, and supportive. I mean, he's really in some ways sort of, you know, godfather of so many of us South Asian Western writers who are, who are writing. Tell me about being the son of immigrants who feel two different ways about their, the opportunities that are available in America. Uh, I think it, it, you know, uh, it gives you a very uh, different perspective on America than you'd have if, if they both felt the same way. Because you can cogently argue and you can see both things. You can see that they're both right. They're both fixated on certain aspects, right? My father is so fixated on the opportunity, the great opportunity that, and my mother is so fixated on the hypocrisies and the kind of rampant anti-intellectualism and the lack of, you know, self-awareness around money, especially. And both things are true, you know, but, but they're, not, they're not exclusively true. Neither side is exclusively right. So, so being the kid, you kind of see both sides and then, in a way, you know, the book begins with a chapter about my father and Trump, and then it, the second chapter is about my mother and bin Laden. And between those two poles of sort of militant, uh, you know, militized anti-colonialism and rampant debt-fueled American individualism, between those two extremes lie the spectrum of, of, of America. You, you, you even mention in the book that the father character certainly thinks like Trump is an example of any idiot can, can <laughs> thrive well, yeah. here. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's, uh, that's the narrator's gloss on what the fundamental meaning of Trump is for my father is it's a, it's a, in, the, in the book, it's that Trump, Trump represents how far you can go even if it's all horseshit. Made on complete and utter lies and uh, debt fuel. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
what audience are you looking for hoping will read this book? A great question. I don't know. You know, I think, I think I, 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 the book sort of, the voice of the book came to me one morning, the day after I'd read a poem by Leopardi, which is the first of his contes, it's a, entitled To Italy. And I read this poem and I thought, would it be possible today to write something that addressed, you know, in, in his poem, he's addressing his fellow Italians. Would it be possible to address my fellow Americans today? Could I find a, was there a voice? And, you know, almost immediately the opening sentence of the overture came to me. And that was the voice that guided, that guided me. And I thought, you know, I have no idea who I'm speaking to other than I'm speaking to my fellow country people. And I don't know if those people like literature, or they don't like literature. It's, it's not a small, it's not a small select consciousness that I'm trying to address. I'm trying to address the, the nation. And of course, you know, that's a very arrogant and hubristic thing, but, but, it, didn't, <laughs> but it didn't come from that at all. It came from a sense of, of, we are one. What has happened to us? And I, of what course, we... have a, a list of people who I hope would one day read it. Maybe they'll listen to the audiobook at least. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I hope. Thank you so much. This has been great. Well, it's Before been we... a pleasure. My pleasure. Before we go, yeah. tell me what you've been reading or what you'd like to recommend to the audience. Well, I'm not sure I would recommend what I have been reading. Okay. <laughs> I mean, Fair. I think it's wonderful. What I'm reading is really wonderful, but it's very specific. I've been reading uh, the second biography of Augustus, the Roman emperor, that um, I read a previous biography of Augustus last summer, and I'm reading a second one now uh, by a German scholar um, named Jochen Bleichen. Um, it's a great book, but it's uh, deep in Roman history, and I have no idea why anybody would want to do that unless they had a good reason to. So, um, And the other thing that I love, which I have read before and just been rereading, re is uh, Saul Bellow's Ravelstein, which I think is his, I think is his best book. And that's saying a lot, because I think some of Bellow's books are amongst the best books ever written by an American. I love that book so much. Have you read Ravelstein? I have not. Oh my God, it's, it was, it's his final book and it's absolutely exquisite. It's like a late Mozart piano concerto, lightness of touch. I mean, what he's able to do, um, you know, I read it before I wrote this and, and just sort of emulated it at times, the ability to, yeah. to marry characterization with scene craft, with thought, with political history, with philosophy, all of it just in this gossamer light tone. It's, it's amazing. And so entertaining. <laughs> Homeland elegies. I, I, I can't wait to take part in a lot of conversations about it. Thank you, Maris. Thank you so much for this uh, this time. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review, and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.